Welcome to uh, True Talk, produced by WMNF uh, 88.5. It's um, November already, Thursday, November 2nd, and we're continuing our coverage of the war in Gaza. If you want to call it a war, um, it seems, and many people are now calling this uh, full-scale genocide that's happening there, where the bombardment has not stopped. Now the death toll tops over 9,000 individuals, uh, 9,000 people, a third of them, or even more than that, are children. If you've heard Democracy Now! earlier today um, and other programming, you see the images or you hear the voices of children crying out, you know, we didn't do anything wrong. Why is this happening? And um, it's hard to ignore those images. The bombardment of children, regardless of where you stand on this issue, you have to agree that killing and murdering children is unacceptable. In no uh, convention, uh, under, you know, in any law, um, domestic, international, um, any religion, just the killing and murdering and bombing of children is just unacceptable. There's no justification for it whatsoever. And all demands for a ceasefire by the world. The world came out protesting all over, including here in the United States. Calls for a ceasefire have um, uh, politicians have ignored, including the White House. And um, even last night or yesterday in a town hall or a fundraising event in Minneapolis, in Minnesota, um, a Jewish rabbi stood up affiliated with Jewish Jewish Voices for Peace stood up and demanded that the president said, as a rabbi, I'm asking you to call for a ceasefire. And for the first time, President Biden has said that he would support a humanitarian pause. And this is something similar that, you know, some progressives, you know, quote-unquote progressives, because I don't think it's a very progressive position, including senators like Senator um, Bernie Sanders and even Senator Warren have called for a humanitarian pause. But what's a humanitarian pause? Just pause the bombing to continue later? This is not some sort of video game where you can just pause and then resume afterwards. Um Online and other places have been calling for a ceasefire. Other people have been calling for a ceasefire. The whole world is demanding a ceasefire take place because they see the images, the horrific images that are coming out of that region, that are coming out of Gaza. As you know, and if you don't know, uh, look it up. Uh, Gaza, how it's pronounced in Arabic, or Gaza, is basically, uh, has been described as some sort of open-air prison or Better, other people have called it a concentration camp because a prison uh, kind of hints at or indicates that the people there are prisoners, that they did something wrong, that they're convicted of some crime. But this is just a concentration camp where all the, the whole boundaries of this place, this small place about the size of St. Petersburg, 25 miles by 5 miles, um, some... 160 square miles, I believe, is the size of it. Um, not much bigger than St. Petersburg, Florida. And it has uh, borders all around, high walls, security, you know, um, military-style 
uh, fencing and walls that and you know that have watchtowers and people can't leave. There are only two exits or two uh, crossings. One is uh, on the on the Israel side, and the other one on the Egyptian side. And both of those have been closed for the first time yesterday. Uh, the border or the crossing at Rafah with Egypt has been open to allow some of the most injured individuals, people to uh, leave or to be taken with ambulances um, for emergency uh, medical relief. And some of the uh, dual nationals, people that are holding foreign passports, meaning you know the 400 or so American citizens and other nationalities were able to also start leaving for the first time after 26, 27 days of bombardment, nonstop since the October 7th attacks by um, the militant group Hamas. So my guest is sending me a message saying that um, they don't have the link, um, the Zoom link. I need to send that again. So I'm going to do that and um, get right back right after this uh, music break. But to wrap up, to wrap up what I was saying, that people don't have anywhere to go. They've received, you know, Israel says that, well, we're telling uh, residents of Gaza to head south. Well, there's nowhere to go south. It's already the most densely populated area in the world. And uh, there's nowhere to go. And, and when they've gone south, they've actually been bombed on their way going south. And now the south is separated or divided from the north. There's really no safe place. And uh, Gaza doesn't have any bomb shelters or places that people can go hide to. Literally nowhere is safe in Gaza at this time. Um, so... It just it's mind-boggling that people continue to use this uh, justification uh, that somehow Israel is defending itself. Um, anger is rising throughout the Middle East and in the Muslim world. Um, for some reason, my Spotify is not coming up either. So all types of difficulties that I'm having right now because usually I'm not that great at multitasking. Um, yeah, but here it is. So um, we'll play this. When we come back, um, we should have our guest on, um, which is um, Layla Al-Haddad. She is also called Gaza Mom. She's written a book called Gaza Mom. So that and um, we'll continue after this break. This is The True Talk, produced by WMNF Studios in Tampa. Fusaro, 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 Fusa
حبايبي فاتوني لهمي وقسايا وحيرة عيوني يا سامع ندايا حبايبي فاتوني لهمي وقسايا وحيرة عيوني ما بين سهدي Welcome back to True Talk. I'm now joined with uh, Layla Al-Haddad, our guest, also known as uh, Gaza Mom. She's an author and a blogger, and um, she is the author of a book also called uh, Gaza Mom, and she's now joining us, I believe, from, um, is it the Washington, D.C. area? In Baltimore? Or... Sorry. Yeah, can you hear me, Hello? Leila? Yeah. Okay, so um, I was saying you're joining us from uh, the Washington, D.C. area? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, you are, um, what, your name is um, Leila Al-Haddad. You're also known as Gaza Mom. Why are you called Gaza Mom? <laughs> Years ago, when I was um, a new mother, and I returned to Gaza to uh, report for Al Jazeera and uh, raised my young son. Um, I started a blog that was initially called Raising Yusuf that was discussing my experiences as a Palestinian mother uh, living under occupation, uh, having to traverse the borders, raising my young son. And that blog eventually became uh, known as Gaza Mom. So in summary, it just conveyed the everyday realities and struggles of Palestinians doing ordinary mundane things <clears throat> what year was this this was between the years of 2003 and 2007 <clears throat> and um it was these what i call critical years that laid the groundwork for what we see unfolding before us today so it took me through the end of the second intifada and the uh so-called israeli disengagement as well as the beginning of economic sanctions, uh, the elections, and then eventually a blockade of the Gaza Strip. <clears throat> so when you say intifada, for our listeners that are not familiar with that, what does that mean? Because we hear first intifada, second intifada, what is that? Yes, so it's, it literally means, it literally translates as uh, shrugging off, uh, and figuratively is often translated as uprising. So it was... Uh, known as the second Palestinian uprising, uh, calling for uh, freedom and rights against a uh, violent, uh, long-standing Israeli rule. So it's like a type of uh, revolt where ordinary people were revolting against the occupation? That's right. And how are they doing that? Well, the first Palestinian uprising in um, 1988, end of 1987... Um, which tragically started in the same refugee camp that we see Israel pummeling today, the Jabalia refugee camp. Um, That was a popular movement that saw Palestinians largely using uh, stones and whatever they could find. Um, It was a response to the lack of regional um, and global intervention in the first time that saw Palestinians on the ground inside Palestine. take control 
uh, over their lives and, and protests in that way. And it included um, large-scale uh, strikes, academic strikes, and uh, unions, and everyone was involved. Um, the second Palestinian uprising uh, in, started uh, in a similar fashion, uh, but did involve more very basic uh, arms. The Palestinians, of course, do not have their own army. They're not an independent or sovereign state. Um, so when I talk about that, it's kind of very low grade, you know, things that the Palestinian Authority might have had access to, but not much more than that. Um, it also culminated the years after that uprising, the second uprising, in what was known as the Great March of Return, which was a massive uh, 20 to 40,000 strong uh person Palestinian um, movement and protest at the border, northern border with Israel, the northern part of the Gaza Strip, demanding um, Palestinians demanding uh, nonviolently their right of return to their ancestral villages and towns. Uh, most of the Palestinians in Gaza aren't from Gaza. They're actually refugees or descendants of refugees that were forcibly displaced from their land in 1948. I was just telling our listeners that uh, before you joined that, you know, Gaza is not a big place. It's a strip that's about 25 miles long, 25 miles wide. Um, our show uh, is produced and broadcast from Tampa Bay. There's a city called St. Petersburg, similar in size, size uh, here in Florida. And um, can you explain a little bit more about uh, who lives in Gaza and how those people end up there? Because you just hinted, you just talked about it now that a lot of these people are not from Gaza. Gaza is Arabic word. Uh, Gaza is how it's pronounced in, in yes. English. Mm -hmm. uh, how, who's, who lives in Gaza? How did they end up there? Yes. In fact, I was just looking up the population of uh, St. Petersburg as you were talking. And I want to say, is it about 250,000? Yeah. yeah, about um, 200, so, 250,000. And you said that Gaza was the size of St. Petersburg? Yeah. So it includes, so the area known as the Gaza Strip, which you said is the size of St. Petersburg, has 2.2 million people in it versus St. Petersburg. It's like 10 times, 10 times more than St. Yes. Petersburg, which is already very, it's kind of already very populated. There's not a lot of space in St. Petersburg. That's right. And so the area that's referred to now that you hear a lot in the news, the Gaza Strip, was actually um, created, meaning the borders artificially after... Uh, the 1948, what Palestinians call their displacement, their Nakba or catastrophe, what Israel refers to as its um, war of independence. Prior to 1948, that area was known as the Gaza District, and it was a much larger area. It, it was a British administrative district. All of historic Palestine was divided into these large districts, the Jerusalem District, the Haifa District. And so when Palestinians were forcibly removed from their land in, in a variety of, um, at that point before it, it was, there was no Israel, of course, at this point, 1947 through 1948, it was Zionist um, militia, as well as um, Zionist terrorist gangs, such as the Urgun um, plans to depopulate Palestinian villages and move them as much as they could towards these areas um, that would then become populated and seal them off. That saw the creation of the Gaza Strip. So 
um, the population of Gaza tripled overnight with these Palestinians that would become refugees that were forced from their homes. And then the borders were drawn around them. Mm. So um, many are are fleeing from safety as Israeli bombs um, are falling over their heads from many eyewitness testimonies, thinking that they will, it will be a matter of a few weeks or whatever it was, days, and then they will be allowed back. But these borders are drawn around them and they were then henceforth forbidden from returning to their homes. Uh, that is why you hear people say that the population of the Gaza Strip uh, is comprised of roughly 80% refugees from other towns and villages surrounding um, modern day Gaza. They didn't originate there. They basically pushed them as far south and towards the sea as possible. And Gaza has, you know, on one side, it's all the Mediterranean Sea. Anymore, they would just be end up in the water. They couldn't go any further. That's right. It's a very narrow strip of land. You have the Mediterranean on one side, you have the Egyptian border on the southern side, and then Israel on the northern and the eastern um, parts. And it's completely sealed off um, with electric fences and walls and, you know, sniper towers all around. There's a naval blockade. Um, And, you know, I should add that, um, you know, I lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. But what I was going to say, essentially, is that it has been subject to some form of closure Mm. uh, for a very long time. This isn't a new phenomenon, but that has gotten more and more um, stringent over the years. I wanted to ask you, you said you were there at this critical time, 2003, you were a journalist for Al Jazeera. Um, At some point, even that small strip, uh, Israelis started building some of these gated communities, which are called, you know, they call them settlements inside Gaza. Uh, is yes, that correct? So that's, that's absolutely right. There was um, dozens of um, illegal um, Jewish-only Israeli, um, what we call settler colonies. They're known as settlements um, in modern-day lingo uh, on the land of Gaza. So even and the land that they shoved them into which, you yes. know, they, they closed them off or they kept them there and they're not allowed to leave. On top of that, they started settling and building gated communities that are only for Jewish people on that land. That's right. And they chose the most fertile land, as, as they still do in the occupied West Bank, to place these settlements on. They put them directly on what's known as the coastal aquifer, um, which gave them access to the water um, that they then used uh, disproportionately. The majority of that water was used by the settlements for swimming pools and all kinds of um, aquaculture and so on. But these settlements also divided Gaza into three sections. Hmm. And um, many an Israeli leader, including Ariel Sharon, Shimon Perez and Rabin, had always said Gaza is a thorn in the side of Israel and we must get rid of it and famously crush the bones of the Palestinian children there during that uprising I mentioned, the first Palestinian uprising. So the settlements were there. Now, what happened in 2005 is the then, sorry, were you going to ask me about that? Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I'm glad you jumped to it. Go ahead, you can go ahead. But during that time, Ariel Sharon was in power and they decided, we hear this all the time now with the current events saying, hey, um, from Israelis, they say, we pulled out of Gaza and we left it to the Palestinians to govern themselves. We moved all these settlements, we, you know, and, and I guess relocated all these Jewish-only uh, folks to within the Israeli proper and out of mm-hmm. Gaza. 
and allowed, gave them the opportunity to govern themselves. And what did they do? They just, you know, built weapons and started firing rockets. So what, what, is, what really happened in 2005 when they so-called pulled out of Gaza? So this was a unilateral plan devised by then Prime Minister Ariel Sharon without consulting with the um, Palestinian government at the time, the Palestinian Authority um, led by Yasser Arafat. Um, and so nobody really knew what his intentions were, but they surmised and economists and analysts at the time said, if this process does not guarantee freedom of movement for Palestinians, as well as for Palestinian goods and commerce, then it will end in disaster and a humanitarian catastrophe. And that's exactly what happened. So the plan was essentially, it was a euphemism. When you say disengagement, it was a literal and figurative disengagement on part of Israel from the Gaza Strip, which they have long considered to be uh, a weak point for them, a vulnerability, a thorn in their side. And so the idea was strategic more than anything. It was a restructuring of their longstanding occupation of the Palestinians. Uh, and it was essentially dismantling those Jewish-only settlements in Gaza, relocating them to other parts um, of Palestine, uh, and then reaffirming their control over Gaza, reorganizing it in a way that they viewed as being more strategic. And so what they ended up doing is, after dismantling those settlements, they completely sealed off the borders of Gaza. Prior to that, there was still some, a little bit of back and forth, but Immediately after the disengagement, they sealed all the borders indefinitely for three months and allowed nothing and no one out or in. Including a complete at that siege. Time, a complete siege, which we hadn't seen up until that point happen. Okay. There was like, there would be closures for a few weeks at a time or whatever it was, and then it would reopen. It was always a struggle to get in and out, but prior to that, we had never seen an all-out complete blockade. Or and you were there at that time. I was there and I documented all of this in my book, Gazamam, about the frustration um, that farmers felt because it was at the height of the, the strawberry and tomato season. And that's when they would export their, their produce with Israeli permission to the West Bank and Jordan and Europe. And they suffered millions of dollars in losses as a result. And so then it became clear that this was not a plan that intended to somehow give Palestinians their freedom and their land. It was just a plan that would enable Israel to more effectively control the Palestinians in line with this policy, this idea that drives all Israeli policy, which is maximizing Israeli control over the land with as few Palestinians in it as possible. Um, this idea of the demographic Palestinian threat. Now, what they ended up doing after dismantling the settlements, as I said, is they retained control over Gaza's markers of sovereignty, over Gaza's airspace, its sea space, uh, its borders, its taxation system, and its population registry. So it's not as though they just said, here you go, we're, we're leaving now. Um, everything is yours and you're free to manage it how you want. Everything from when you could turn the water on to what kinds of food you had access to, to you know when you, you had power, access to electricity, where you could study and who you could even marry, continued to be controlled by Israel. And this was, of course, evidenced in the past few weeks by in one statement when the defense minister Galant said, we will be turning water and power off, um, dismissing all of the myths of the past 17 years and claims of the naysayers that Israel wasn't really in control. When in fact, it just went click and then it shut all of the water, you know, the pipelines off, destroyed them um, to Gaza. So essentially they continued to control Gaza, but from a distance, um, 
and and in a way that was more i would say um harmful than before because now though there were no longer israelis within the gaza strip they controlled they were there all around the borders and started to prevent people from exiting and entering at a at a and as well as trucks of of supplies and goods at an alarming rate um and so this plunged the, the entire area into economic and humanitarian uh crisis and it ushered in the beginning the elections and then the beginning of the um all right i want to get it i want to get get into that i had read before that one of the reasons they actually pulled out and disengaged from gaza in that way or at least removed the settlements was it was becoming too costly and too difficult to protect those settlements because part of the the thing that they do is when they built these colonies these settlements within palestinian land is they have to provide military defense or the military has to defend these and provide security and it was just becoming too costly and that's one of the reasons and at that time when those and i i read some crazy number like every family that was relocated out of gaza at the time received something like three hundred thousand dollars to get another house and and i think the united states even paid for it or something like that from our own tax money which you know the united states is not paying three hundred thousand dollars to americans to have their own homes here um, Absolutely. At some point during the Bush administration, um, and we're going some, through some history because I think context is important to understand how we got here. This is not just like, right. you know, on October, because so many, you hear everyone talking about October 7th as if that's the beginning of the conflict. It happened that's, in a vacuum. It happened in a vacuum, even when the UN uh, Security General mentioned that, hey, October 7th did not happen in a vacuum. There are all these calls for his resignation and somehow that he is justifying terrorism when he said no such thing. You're saying, hey, look at what happened before. So we're looking at that right now. At some point, the Bush administration in their, I don't know, rhetoric to push for democratization of the Middle East and saying, hey, we're trying to spread democracy. Um, they push for elections in uh, Palestine. And to surprise to some people, a group called Hamas, who had not participated in elections before, that's a designated terrorist organization by the United States, decided to participate in elections. So the main parties, I guess, was Fatah, the one that, or also known as the Palestinian Liberation Organization, PLO, that had been basically had one party rule there. And now right. other people are getting in. One of them is Hamas. What happened when the election took place, I guess, in 2006 or is it 2005? Yes, 2006. Um, and I was there. I was just actually happened to be looking through pictures on my Flickr account from that time. Because oh, Flickr. Okay. <laughs> There's no iPhone back then that you can just flip through. There was no iPhone. There was no, there was no, I know it's hard to imagine Facebook or Twitter. But I, but I, what I was doing is going around to the different um, polling stations to to see what was going on and and document it. But the United States actually encouraged them to. They formed a political party, and and they were sort of encouraged. When you say they, who? The the Hamas formed a political party okay. at that time. Prior so they that, were, they were encouraged by people in the West to, I guess, form a party. This was well documented, okay. yes. Condoleezza Rice and others, because the thinking was perhaps if they could be brought into the fold um, with, the, with an understanding that they won't ever really win. But if they could brought into the fold, um, it would kind of make them more, quote unquote, mainstream or whatever, right? Um, they would, they um, would, be, would give up the violence and join the political process and be part of politics, I guess, or at least that that's the rhetoric. The, 
that was the thinking from the American standpoint. Um, now, they, they did not expect that they would win the elections in a landslide. And um, the Americans were not too happy about this. And so um, little known fact, and I should just add prior to the months prior to the election were those months I was talking about right after the Israeli disengagement from Gaza and the subsequent three months of complete um, blockade on Gaza that caused mass, you know, disillusionment and um, people weren't happy. They weren't mm. happy with with the fact that there was no prospects or horizons, political prospect or horizons. Um, they weren't happy with the way that Fatih was running things. Um, and they weren't happy with the what they felt was the ensuing lawlessness and corruption within Palestinian society, very importantly. And I say this because you need to understand that Palestinians, like everyone else, um, think about their own interests and their families and the safety of their families, their human beings. And just like any other voter anywhere else, they have their own, you know, agenda, things at stake, right? Their own interests. So what happens is Hamas wins the elections and the uh, United States is not too happy about this. And so in what is known as the Gaza bombshell, there's a great article in Vanity Fair that talks about this. The uh, what's known as I'm just reading here, part Iran Contra, part Bay of Pigs with confidential documents corroborated by outraged former and current U.S. officials. The author reveals how President Bush, Condoleezza Rice and Deputy National Security Advisor Elliot Abrams backed an armed force under Fatih, which was which was the opposing party, strongman Mohammed Dahlan, touching off a bloody civil war in Gaza, which leaves Hamas stronger than ever. So in summary, the United States didn't didn't anticipate this victory, and mm -hmm. then they tried to do damage control. And so they get the CIA involved, and it funnels in millions of dollars of arms into Gaza. And I remember that period well, because nobody knew what was going on. It wasn't safe to go out in the streets. There was, you know, gunfights, and nobody knew where or how they would originate or why. Um, there was, like, mobs, you know, that would steal your cars and your phones, and it was just chaos. Mm. Um, and then this all culminates in the in the what's known as the counter coup of June 7th, when Hamas um, sort of formally takes over Gaza and kicks Fatih out. And then it became apparent that this was actually the CIA meddling. So this was like they were um, trying to do some sort of regime change within Gaza yes, because they it, would not approve or I guess they would not. They didn't like the outcome of the elections, and this is. They didn't like the outcome, and they so they finance um, this uh, this guy that's part of Fatih that they thought would would make a good uh, leader when most view him as actually a dictator and was viewed at the time, and it backfired. The idea was to try to get this group, this militant group in Gaza, to overthrow in a in a in some form or fashion. Um, the election results and Hamas before they could start governing. But they hadn't at this point formed the government. They had won the elections, but no government was officially formed. So that backfired as well. And then leaving us in but the that, but that, But that meant, that meant the a faction within Palestine did go along with this plan to, you know, arm themselves and fight against their fellow Palestinians. Not all of, and I don't want to generalize, not all of the, the Fatih party. This was one specific... Like a um, wing... Or faction? Yes, it was an offshoot within Fatih. Okay. Um, led by uh, this guy, Mohammed Halan. But did um, Fatih actually also accept the results of the election or were they upset or, you know? 
I mean, it's. I mean, the the, the results. Were, there was monitors there. there was mm -hmm. eight, Even there, Jimmy Carter, I think, had said it was a yeah, one of the yeah, most yeah. fair elections. I mean, I think what needs to be said here is, had they been given a chance to govern, <clears throat> like any other group, I suspect we might be in a very different place today. When you just give them a chance and let things run their course, if the United States supported Palestinian um, democracy. And and rather than continuously sabotage it, we probably wouldn't be in the situation we are today. Palestinians, like anyone else, you know, vote based on their interests. As I said, there are supporters and there are detractors, and who they vote for one year might not be who they voted for another. That year, they were voting again, voting again, thinking in mind um, largely. Everyone I spoke to at the time at the polling stations was thinking mainly about their personal safety and wanting to ensure stability within Gaza. That's what they were thinking about. And Hamas at and that they, point was providing a lot of other social services. They were right. running clinics and doing things within the community that give them some street cred or some sort of That's right. They, they've always been, and this is just, again, this is a sort of a political fact, political and social fact. They've always been part of the social fabric of society for a very long time since uh, they were formed in 1987. And by that, I mean they have schools and, and clinics and, and all sorts of uh, social services that they provide. And so they weren't considered to be some kind of rogue group that just came out of nowhere, um, you know, descended upon the scene from Mars or something. Um, they had, as you said, street cred. Now, that, didn't, that doesn't mean everybody necessarily agrees, just like anywhere else with all of their policies. But the reality is they had some credibility, and especially at a time when things were just collapsing internally um, within Gaza. I should note that, you know, both of us are Americans. We're both in America. And the United States <laughs> recognizes Hamas as a terrorist organization. Obviously, as Americans, um, we uh, have no other, you know, we can't, we can't say otherwise, depending on us. I don't want somebody to come along and later on say, oh, these guys are trying to somehow, you know, uh, do a PR for this group. But we're just stating the facts. You know, that's what I'm talking no, to you about. This is just an analysis. This Any is an analysis. Yeah, exactly. Academic. Right. We'll, so, we'll tell so you the same thing. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, Hamas, I guess they discovered that this thing was happening. Regime change, CIA is involved, weaponizing. You know, they defeated this, uh, this group. And uh, they recognized, I guess, that they're not going to be given a chance to govern and what happens after that, since that time until now? What happens is immediately uh, a blockade and economic sanctions. Uh, so prior to this, there was, a, there was a closure, as I said. Israel had sealed Gaza's borders. But after the elections, uh, Israel, along with uh, regional allies in the United States, <clears throat> slap a, a, a full blockade on all of the Gaza Strip and it's 2.2 million inhabitants. What's the justification? Uh, that is a really good question. <laughs> One that many Palestinians were asking because they were saying, well, wait, you guys told us to go to the polls and we did that and um, you weren't happy with the results. What, what do we have to do with this? Because in essence, the blockade was punishing the people of Gaza, right? It was preventing them from leaving or entering Gaza. It was preventing them from being able to live ordinary lives. Um, the justification was ju that uh, Hamas, as you said, was recognized as a terrorist organization. And, um, but ultimately, I mean, it's as simple as they didn't like the election results. Mm. But the, their stated um, 
their stated objective or their stated justification was, well, we can't, you know, they're a terrorist organization and therefore we won't um, stand for this. We won't work um, with terrorists. For its part and others saw them as a threat um, because of their um, Islamist nature. They saw them, they saw their election as a threat to their autocratic rule in Egypt, um, Mubarak at the time. And so that's for everyone, I think, have their own reasons for, for doing it. Um, but I think that that's regionally speaking, the Arab world, they saw the fact that a democratic election had happened as a threat, but globally, Western countries saw them as a terrorist organization. And, but again, it's just to me a little bit, you know, <laughs> they were encouraging, the Europeans were monitors in the election. And then mm -hmm. they came around and said, nah, on second thought, you know, but that was the justification. Um, now what ends up happening is the blockade becomes a very deliberate, well thought out, well articulated means to uh, essentially deprive the population, uh, not only of their basic freedoms, but restrict um, and monitor the amount of calories that they will be allowed in. What do you mean by that? And so so the, <clears throat> the um, advisor to Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon at the time was called Dove Weisglass. And even before the blockade came into full force, he came out to the Israeli daily newspaper Haaretz and said the idea behind the disengagement so that there are no illusions about what we're intending here, and this is a direct quote, is to put the political process in formaldehyde. So to indefinitely freeze any political prospects with the Palestinians. This same guy, Dov Weisglass, comes out later and helps devise the what would become the blockade in Gaza and said the idea is to put Palestinians on a diet, but not let them starve to death. So this is what he said. This is this was the way he described the goal of the blockade when asked. And in line with that, there was leaked documents from Israeli officials to the US embassy saying that um, they wanted, when asked about their, their intentions, the Israelis said they wanted to keep Gaza indefinitely on the brink of collapse. So constantly just allowing it, which we see happening even now in the current war on Gaza, an intravenous strip of relief, but never enough to really allow Palestinians to thrive and, and live their lives. And, and also detract from the larger issue, which wasn't just access to food, but access to their basic rights and freedoms from Israeli occupation. So, and so yeah. Uh, well, and I so then, to, in, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. No, I wanted to just ask, continue on that. It's, yeah. you know, the blockade started in 2007 and has continued until now. Uh, there's been, you know, at least five wars or attacks or assaults or in, invasions. Um, on Gaza since, uh, I've, you know, we've heard this term, mowing the lawn. Can you describe that to our listeners? What, what is that? You know, how is yes, that part so of their program to control the population and, you know, the Palestinians in Gaza? The idea, the, the idea behind this is to continue with the, you know, the Israelis understanding is that they can never really <clears throat> crush Gaza. And so, and any resistance in Gaza to their policies. And so the thinking then became, instead of trying to just completely defeat them, we'll just contain them. 
and constantly put them in check. And that's what this policy of mowing the lawn means is every few years, find a way, some excuse or justification to pound Gaza, reduce its, you know, whatever military capability it might have, turn its infrastructure into rubble, um, essentially pacify the population as well, because this is part of the strategy. Um, and then the cycle kind of repeats um, and every few years. And so many analysts actually have said that the time was ripe around the time of October 7th for Netanyahu to engage in such an attack once again on Gaza. And he had some knowledge, again, this is security analysts, of what was about to happen, but not, I think, the extent of it. Um, Because the Egyptians did say that they warned Netanyahu's office and the Israelis That's right. that yeah. an attack was coming and there was all these reports that they were warned but nothing was done and there was such, you know, they were able to just stroll in basically without any type of opposition. So these are things I'm sure that will come out in the future. Um, but, in you know, before October 7th uh, events... Uh, do you have any idea? I mean, the number of casualties, I think it's in, it's in uh, I guess, in the thousands since the blockade started in Gaza, that they're able just to go in, airstrikes, kill people with impunity, and there's no accountability for that, right? So this is a big part of the problem, is that <clears throat> even outside of the theater of war, if you will, active war, you know, in the acute sense, Gaza is continually subject to this long-standing blockade um, that dates back, as you said, to the elections of Hamas. And even before that, as I mentioned, some form of closure that severely restricted the movement. And I can you know, testify to that having lived there. It would take me weeks sometimes to get approval to leave or, or to go in. Um, and so essentially, um, no one is putting them in check. We as you know, uh, Americans, as our, our administration, as U.S. government is giving them a blank check and never t- holding them accountable and saying, you know, maybe this problem, maybe what you really desire, security and safety, which is essentially what everyone desires, cannot be resolved with brute force. Like, let's, you know, think for a moment. Perhaps it makes sense to address the underlying problems, which is the Again, the long-standing blockade, not only on Gaza, by the way, we, I do want to mention the, the occupied West Bank and East Jerusalem as well, from which Gaza is completely severed. Um, that blockade has impacted thousands of people in Gaza, not just in terms of fatalities, um, of course, let alone the four different assaults that um, Israel has waged on Gaza that have resulted in, in thousands of people who have become disabled and, <clears throat> and so on. And so forth, but on access of you know people who need dire medical treatment, cancer patients, for example, um, I think one third of all requests for medical treatment out of Gaza are denied by Israel. So just think about that. People, I mean, my own aunt died from cancer because she was unable to get the treatment she needed. So um, you know, and again, just talking about the every, this, the impact of this blockade, not just active bombardment on the everyday lives of Palestinians. Um, you know, so many university students I've spoken to have been denied um, the ability to leave Gaza to go and pursue uh, their degrees elsewhere, scholarship students and, and otherwise. 
Um, most of the population is not allowed to go and pray in Jerusalem, for example. This includes, by the way, many Palestinian Christians who have not been spared in the most recent attacks um, by Israel. They, Palestinians in Gaza, are completely cut off from their brethren in the in the occupied West Bank as well. Mm. And while we're at it, Palestinians within the West Bank are are severed from one another by more than 500 Israeli um, occupation military checkpoints. And so they can't move freely within the West Bank or even to Jerusalem. It, Bethlehem is 10 minutes away from Jerusalem. It takes the average Palestinian, and only if they are given a permit by Israel, more than four hours to get there. Um, so these are just everyday stark realities for Palestinians that can help explain their discontent. Um, you know, it seems like the we discontent just seems discontent seems like to put it kind of mildly. I mean, if you grew yeah. up and you're born in in a concentration camp and you can't leave and you have these walls and and you can't, you know, you're just basically treated like an animal. Um, and this is one thing that when I when I get when I talk to people, yeah, and and you know, to your point, there has been an entire generation of Palestinians in Gaza that has grown up since the blockade and after that, since the first major Israeli assault on Gaza, it cast lead in 2009. That has grown up just knowing, you know. I don't even want to use the word war because it implies symmetry. Just knowing genocide, occupation, and bombardment. Yes, yeah, and that's strikes. Been, that's, that's what the they. Life. That's what they know they Israel were, to be. They weren't in elections. They were just born into this, and and most have never left. Um, you know, when I talk to people, and I, and I often say, you know, attacking uh, Israeli children or civilians is unacceptable, and it's something that is that we all we find horrific. And you try to explain some of the context, say, oh, you're justifying terrorism, you're justifying the murder of, of Jews, which that's not the case. Say that, hey, something happened before, let's understand what happened to prevent it from the future. But are you surprised by the just huge disproportionate genocidal, I guess, bombardment that we're seeing now that's coming out of Gaza where you used to live? I mean, you've been to those places, you've seen those neighborhoods the density that's happening there and then just the bombardment. You said mentioned Jabalaya camp, refugee camp. These are refugees in one of the most it's like the most densely populated part of Gaza, which is the most densely parted part of the world. It's basically the most densely populated area on the planet. And they dropped six one ton uh, bombs on this one square, killing hundreds, and then the world was outraged and then they did it the next day again. Just Back to back, it's they're just bombing with impunity and no one can stop them. Uh, in addition to that, you hear politicians uh, in the United States saying that there are no red lines coming out of the White House. We're not going to put any red lines. People like Lindsey Graham saying, you know, do whatever you want, level the place. As somebody who's from Gaza and you see the images and you see the politicians here, like, what's, what's, what's your reaction to all that? You know, I just before I got on this call, I was speaking with my cousins and my uncle who are in Gaza City. Half of my family is in the southern part of Gaza and the rest are right now literally in the direct line of fire. And I've just been checking in on them continuously. And they're completely terrified and said that they're surrounded, completely surrounded. Um, the Israelis are firing and bombing artillery fire from the east and, and from the west by Navy gunships and from the sky, and they're literally stuck in the middle. 
and um I mean, I have no no words. I've I've gotten to the point where I don't know how to effectively convey um, the fact that humanity has failed the Palestinians of Gaza. There's just I keep getting asked what you think, and and I just I'm not even thinking anymore. I just it's I I feel like everyone is just watching. I mean, initially when this first started. I knew that we were we were to expect the worst because of because Netanyahu had promised that for years he had said and made promises about wanting to turn Gaza into rubble. But was really terrifying to me, as you mentioned, was the genocidal rhetoric coming from the mouths of Israeli politicians that and then to have our own administration here perpetuate lies and fabrications and propaganda and and say, as you mentioned, there are no red lines, enable Israel and be complicit in war crimes and crimes against humanity. Um, it's just a toxic combination when you're saying to them, do whatever it is you need to do. And then and then when you push back, as I have to many of our politicians, what does that mean? What is it that they need to do? And what does the day after look like? And what's the plan here? They have no answer. Mm. Um, that's truly terrifying to me. Um, the things that Israeli politicians are saying, not just about turning Gaza to rubble, but making biblical genocidal calls about wiping all Palestinians out, um, about about you know this not being about about in the words of the Israeli army spokesperson about precision, but about damage, just maximum inflicting as much damage as possible. And satellite imagery and analysis of the so-called targets confirms that forty-one percent of the Palestinians that have been killed have been children. 70% have been women and children. So this is clearly telling a very different story. Well, I want you to hold um, that thought and uh, we're going to just go to the news and I'm going to continue this interview with you. This is WMNF Tampa and PR News is next.